Well, good evening, everybody. It's lovely to be back with you. Eileen is sitting over there. And um, we've had a fantastic day. The weather has been wonderful, so we've been able to wander around and see something of Birmingham. So uh, last night I was talking about human nature. And I was challenging the idea that uh, of the platonistic and dualistic idea that we really are made of a spirit and body. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that we are one being in which the nephesh, the spirit, and body are one. And you see, the Christian faith it focuses on resurrection, not immortality. God gives us life. You and I didn't choose to be born. Um, but it came to us as an unexpected surprise and that's the way heaven is going to be because the new being is a gift from God and what I want to do is to follow on from this to say okay we're living in a changed world these days so many challenging faces the Christian church how can churches grow how can we ourselves be more informed Christians. So the title is Fallen and Free, the Pastoral Dimension of Being Human. And we saw the complexity of um, the doctrine of human nature last night. So we're going to be looking at what it is to be a human living in our world. And falling, fallen and free, I think, is a very apt and accurate description of our age, yet free to choose and to do so of our own volition. Now we may think we're choosing and maybe something in our nature gets in the way and that's called, of course, sin. We know so much about human nature these days, don't we? And such life, life disciplines such as psychology, social sciences, philosophy, uh, tells us so much more about what we are, who we are, and yet our weakness is so very apparent. To make matters worse, life is changing dramatically all the time. Now, when I think of fallenness, I remember the seven or so years I was chaplain in a youth custody prison in Durham, up in Durham in England. And I heard a lovely story about the prisoner's wife who wrote a letter to her husband in prison, which read this, Dear husband, as spring is approaching, I intend to plant lettuces in the back garden. Now her prison husband, knowing that letters are read by the staff, replied, Not yet, not yet. Don't touch the back garden, because that is where the money is buried. And so she wrote back the following week, Dear husband, ten men came this week and dug up the back garden, <laughs> but, but they found nothing. And he replied, Now is the time to plant your lettuces. <laughs> uh, and it makes a, a lovely story, doesn't it? Uh, but you know, from my experience, I realised that prisons are dark places, places of human weakness, and powerlessness. And if you are a prisoner, then the company you keep 
is a daily wearying tale of failure, hopelessness and helplessness. The great writer Oscar Wilde, who's well known, he wrote in prison the Ballad of Reading Jail. We live not far away from Reading. Now this is what he said of his experience. I not know whether laws be right or whether laws be wrong. All that we know who lie in jail is that the wall is strong and that each day is like a year, a year whose days are long. But you know, life outside the prison in our so-called free world is not greatly different. We don't talk about sin very much these days. But you can bet on it, sin reigns in our society. It's the reason why prisons are full in your country and mine. Why marriages break down. Why crime remains high. Why half our newspapers talk about human folly, failure, fickleness, as well as Donald Trump, of course. (laughs) The the great Czech president, Vaclav Havel, who died a few years ago, used to talk about living in a contaminated moral environment. He wasn't speaking as a Christian, although I think he was a Christian. His statement actually strangely echoes what we believe about the world, that we need to break free of what holds us back, what stops us becoming the kind of people we really deep down know we want to be. But let's stop for a moment and think about the impact of Christianity on our two nations. The Christian faith is not alien to America or Britain or Europe. Islam, on the other hand, is alien because although it's present now in all our countries through immigration, its laws, its customs, its faith are not visible in the West. They haven't, it hasn't shaped our history. Christianity's role, however, is without doubt crucial to understanding our history, our culture, our law. But everything is changing. Sometime last year, Eileen and I were traveling, um, I don't know if we were going up to Durham or back from Durham, and as the train cruised along at over 100 mile an hour, I found I could barely see the signs of the stations we were going through, just whizzing through them. Everything was speeding past at such a rate. And I think this could be a parable of the world we're now living in. Look around at our society, and there's no doubt about it, so much has changed, and people of my generation, you can look back, it's amazing and bewildering. Change, it seems, to be the only constant. And... But, and we mustn't think, by the way, that the churches the, are the only victims of this. Of course not. Because we're all changed by the progress of this. But there is a special challenge for the church because we're not simply another organisation like a golf club or the billiard club or whatever or the, in the Britain, the British Legion. Christianity is part of our nation. It's indelibly linked with everything in it. And Christian thinking has shaped your nation right from the pioneers to the present time. Our art, our literature, our music, our institution, our laws, in a very special way. 
There's a book I want to recommend. Um, it's by um, Niall Ferguson. He wrote a book called, um, some years ago, um, about five, six years ago, Civilization, the West and the Rest. And it's worth reading. And he quotes, um, sorry, this was then reviewed by Dominic Lawson in uh, the Times in Britain. And Dominic Lawson um, quotes... Um, a member of the Chinese Academy of Natural Sciences who says this and writes this in the last 20 years we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion Christianity that's why the West is so powerful the Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life has made possible the emergence of capitalism um, and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We have no doubt about that. And the irony is that foreigners are more likely to spot this connection than we in the West are. Now, I'm reminded of the poet W.H. Alden, uh, his situation just before the war, last war. He was living, he was an Englishman uh, who then became an American in about 1945. And he was living in New York at the time. And he watched with great alarm the way that um, Europe was changing with the menacing power of Hitler and the Nazis. Alden was a lapsed Anglican. He had been baptized some years before. Uh, but in 1939, Alden started going along to church again. He went to St. Mark's in New York. And there were two reasons for his sudden change of mood. The first is this. He had become very friendly with C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, and he was influenced also by Reinhold Niebuhr, the great uh, theologian, American theologian. And the second reason was the political context of the time, dominated by Marxism and fascism. He had paid a visit to Barcelona a few years before, during the Spanish Civil War, and he was shocked to find that all the churches in Barcelona had closed, and most of the priests had been killed. And he wrote this, This discovery left me profoundly shocked and disturbed. I couldn't help acknowledging, however, I had consciously ignored and rejected the church for 16 years. But the existence of churches and what went on in them had all the time been very important for me. And so he was frightened by the world changing. And he found himself asking, if, as I'm convinced that the Nazis are wrong, and we are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? And he replied to his own question this way, the answer to that question was part of what brought me back to the church. And as he surveyed the alternatives to the Christian faith, he concluded, it's no longer possible to believe that the values of liberal humanism are self-evident. And so there was an intellectual conversion in Alden's case. Because he's saying this, humanism needs to be grounded in something higher 
than a, a purely material view of the universe. Only a faith grounded in God could support liberal concepts like equality and human rights. And he goes on to say this, only God could ask human beings to love their crooked neighbors with all their crooked hearts. Isn't that a lovely <laughs> phrase? And you know, there's an astonishing relevance in Alden's conversion. Now, if we then now speed forward to today, Marxism and fascism show very few signs of resurgence. But liberal humanism is still very relevant and is the prevailing philosophy of America in its cities, particularly New York and London where we live. Because the prevailing liberal humanism is based on the fundamental goodness of human beings and our continuing hubris that there is no problem beyond the reach of humankind's ability to resolve. Now, about the time that Alden was having his conversion experience, in England, George Orwell, Malcolm Muggeridge, and other thinkers were thinking in very similar ways. Malcolm Muggeridge, who became very famous through the BBC, um, wrote a book called The Thirties. And George Orwell gave a review of this, and he says in his review, uh, One day I played a cruel trick on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate, and I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed oesophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It is the same with modern man, says Orwell. The thing that is being cut away is his soul. And there was a period, say 20 years, during which he didn't notice it. A wonderful description. Pretty horrible though, isn't it? You see, uh, George Orwell was thinking from his vantage point, and I have to say, if you haven't read anything of George Orwell, he's a remarkable, remarkable writer. He was quite convinced, and because he's writing actually as an atheist. Mind the, the irony is, he, he, he now is buried in an, an ordinary country village churchyard, so we got him in the end, you see. So. <laughs> um, Orwell... Orwell was quite convinced that religion was on its way out. How could it not be um, in such a position with the, with the fight against Nazism and so on? And he was astonished that Malcolm Mudrid, Mudrid had become a Christian. Um, and so Orwell took the view that religious faith had to be abandoned. However, this was his dilemma. He was aware that if you sawed the branch upon which Western society rested, it didn't automatically mean we're going to be falling into a bed of roses, but in his own words, into a cesspool full of barbed wire. And that, that's a reality. That was Orwell's 
problem. Okay, how can you believe in God? But the alternative is pretty scary. That's what he's saying. So the context of what we're working, and these things are relevant to us today. Uh, what do we do about it? How can we become wrong, strong in our faith? What's our mission to this emerging culture? And my answer to it is going to take three forms. And the first one is, at the very heart of Christian ministry and mission, is transformation. Transformation. And particularly a transformed ministry. I'm talking about reaching out to people who, from the context of my talk last night, are strong and weak, loved and unlovely, moral and immoral, good and bad. That's us, you and me. And all of us are, unless we are transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Let me go to another poet. I mentioned Alden, who became an American. I want to mention T.S. Eliot, who's an American, who became British. Uh, and both of them are the great poets of the 20th century. Uh, T.S. Eliot, um, I'm one of, I, I, he's one of my heroes, and he wrote a wonderful poem um, called East Coker. And when I was Bishop of Bath and Wells, East Coker was in my diocese. I remember visiting uh, East Coker and the ashes of T.S. Eliot are in that church. He wrote a wonderful um, stanza in East Coker. Let me read it to you. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease. If we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind us of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored our sickness must grow worse. And his last verse is, The dripping bread our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of what we like to think, that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of this, we call this Friday good. Now, that's a wonderful poem. And when you actually dissect what he's get, getting at, he's talking about the link between Jesus, the Saviour who died, and our health. Our only health is the disease. And it reminds us that no Christian is ever cured of sin, although we are forgiven and free. We remain sinners and vulnerable to the end of our days. And this consideration lies at the heart of any great church and successful Christian ministry, whatever we are called to do. But right now, I'm actually considering the task of bringing people closer to the Lord and within earshot of the gospel. And it's going to come, you know, and this is my experience over many years, it's going to come from renewed and dedicated Christian ministry, given over not to the success of the church, the building, the organization, but to a, a ministry that reaches out to everybody. And no minister, no Christian limits our work to what I call churchianity. No, we have to adjust our lens, our spiritual lens, 
to the kingdom of God in the world today as much as in the church. That's why, actually, we ought to be praying for our politicians because they're at work in the world, our teachers and so on, Christian teachers, because they're working out in the world to create something of the kingdom of God. Now, from a long ministry, I can tell you this, that healthy Christianity comes from dedicated clergy and lay people, lay people like you, whose unswerving goal is to please God and whose lives are dedicated to that end. Now, let me give an illustration. Some years ago, Eileen and I had um, owned a cottage in Wales. If you look at the um, map of England and Wales, the Gower Peninsula is a lovely, pretty peninsula reaching out into the Atlantic Ocean. And we have a, a, had a little cottage in Clanridian. I can't pronounce it properly. The two L's, only the Welsh can pronounce it. Um, and so Clanridian, just before our time, came a new priest, Eldon Phillips. A wonderful man. He'd been a teacher, felt the call to ordination, and so his first post was to the three churches on the Gower Peninsula. And he had, a, he had a really tough time on his hand because the Welsh are not naturally church-going people. They are prouder of the chapel than, the, uh, than they are the church, although these days the Anglican church is doing better than the chapel. So what did Eldon bring to his job? Well, you know, Eileen and I would say unhesitatingly, what he brought was himself and his own naturalness. He loved people. He entered into their lives and community. He was always there when the community needed help or got together for celebration or the opposite. He was always the DJ when the young people wanted disco, for example. He was a natural clown as well as a natural teacher. He was the natural centre of the community. He was as prepared to get his hands dirty as he was to give a solemn speech. And it won't surprise you to know that his impact on the villagers was very remarkable. They were given hope. People gathered around. Now, the interesting thing is this, and I've often thought about that. I'm not sure if that good man ever used words such as mission or evangelism. I don't think he mentioned them once in my hearing. But let us not be fooled. He was doing it all the time. And he drew people into an encounter with the Lord out of a natural understanding of God and, and his love. And there are many priests um, like that, men and women who are doing that kind of job and how well that I think expresses effective ministry. In fact I think we can actually deduce a very important principle from this that there is a direct link between effective inspired leaders and successful organisation. That's true whether we're talking about Apple, Ford's Motor Company or a great local school, or a church situation where you've got fine leadership here. Leadership counts. Leadership is central. 
Now in Britain, from time to time, we get news of decline in church attendance. And I don't wish to deny the degree of challenge to some dioceses. I have a lay friend, we have a lay friend, he's a businessman, a very successful businessman, and a wonderful Christian man. He's been asked by the Bishop of Salisbury to help the church in activating, getting clergy off their backside and showing some leadership and so on. Are you aware that the diocese of Salisbury, and it's a really large diocese, the average Sunday attendance is under 20. Under 20. Now, of course, I have to tell you, some of those villages are very small. I mean, it's a pretty successful ministry if you have 20 and the village is 100. That's a pretty good percentage. But not all are like that. And so, our friend Barry has been given the job to inspire to, and, to, and to work at it from a business point of view how churches can grow. And I would argue, and I've said this to Barry, well, actually, you know, to drive up num numbers from 15 to 20, or 20 to 20, it, it's not a great uh, challenge. If you can't do that, you ought not to be in the ministry anyway. Um, and I still, I still believe that. And here, Holy Trinity Brompton can teach us a great deal. It's one of the success stories of the Church of England, as you know. HTB, as well known, through the Alpha program and so on, is known for its commitment to training and education of lay people. And with the encouragement of the Bishop of London, uh, Richard Charters, who by tradition is not at home in the evangelical charismatic tradition of HTB, but he's blessed it, and he said, go forth and multiply. And uh, so it's done. HTB has now planted scores and scores of churches in the London diocese. The London diocese is probably the most effective diocese in the Church of England. It's often struck me, you know, that the leadership of the church, we've made a great mistake in England. I can't compare this with American staff meetings in the average diocese or whatever. But the weakness of the Church of England is we've actually paid more attention to weakness than we have to strength. Uh, let me explain what I mean. But um, I remember when I became Archbishop of Canterbury and that meant I had to chair the staff meetings um, on a monthly basis um, in the diocese of Canterbury. And the first hour I found was being spent on problem clergy. We spent an hour talking about so-and-so, you've got problems, you have depression, and so on. And I remember re remarking, because we were doing missions in the diocese, but what about the successful people? What about the so-and-so doing such a fantastic job? Congregations doubled and, and so on. It was almost as if we were not bothered about growth. We're only concerned with saying, there, there, you'll get better eventually. And it was a really odd way. If, if this was a business, you wouldn't apply it in that kind of way. Trying to deal with inadequate people um, who were as likely to fly to the moon as they were to lead anyone to faith. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so I, we felt, and we did change that attitude in the staff meeting. So the point I want to make is that effective ministry is somehow 
related to effective leadership, whether it's clergy, whether it's lay. And I want to go on from that to suggest two ways in which we break out of a, a kind of circularity of survival and maintenance uh, that is the picture of many churches in Britain. Now, it's surely um, understandable from the New Testament itself that the growth of the early church emerged from two basic poles, spirituality and service. The first is so obvious that I, I'm, I almost blush to speak of it. But I must, because I think it's the most important incentive for evangelism, is that we personally know the power of the gospel in our lives, and we want to make Jesus Christ known. Now, I could call this by a number of names. I could call it encounter. I could call it conversion. I can call it spirituality. And let me linger with that term. Now, spirituality takes a number of different forms. There is an evangelical spirituality, and probably you share this with me here this evening. When, as we grew up in our church in Dagenham, an evangelical Anglican church, the whole thing focused around the quiet time, QT, your prayer in the beginning of the day and Bible reading. Our vicar, Pit Pat, Edward Porter Conway Patterson, or Pit Pat, we caught him behind his back. Um, he was a very fierce missionary fellow, and we owe so much to him the importance of your private spirituality, your prayer life, Bible reading particularly. And we thank God for that. To this very day, I can remember chunks of the New Testament that I had to memorize. But over the years, I've grown in my understanding of spirituality. And there's so much that we gain in, from the Anglo-Catholic and Roman Catholic traditions. The focus is more on meditation, guided retreats, study of the saints, the sacraments, and so on. And there's so much to, to commend there. I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, in Britain and in France, the abbeys, the monasteries, the convents are being besieged by people who want to spend time there for meditation. And so they're not necessarily wanting to become monks or nuns, but they're being driven back to basic principles and so on. And I believe that this touches a chord in the heart of so many people today, busy people. I don't know if this is common in, in the States, but in Britain, we often hear people saying this, well, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Do you, is that a, a common thing over, over here? Well, then, then there's an identity. It's a strange thing when you think about it, really, because there is undeniably a link between religion and spirituality. I can't say our person can be spiritual without it in some way being religious, if by religious we mean being open to the transcendent. And this suggests to me that here is a very important area where an overlap between church and the wider society uh, exist and where we might be able to minister to it and to exploit 
and to bring cl people closer to the church. And I want to give you some reflections um, on that. For example, if we take, for example, um, things like offering courses in church life, maybe once or a year on, for example, the, the secret of contentment. People are looking. How can we become more contented people? The Bible is clear about that. There's a lot to say in the scriptures about contentment. Or the power of prayer. How to meditate. How to handle doubt. Or we could take real people and look at key missionaries like the Methodists, E. Stanley Jones, the um, great Baptist, William Carey, sadly no relation uh, to me. You see, people are looking for transformative experiences. And I think they are actually keen to know how we came to faith, what led us on the journey, how we handle doubt, what intimations of God's love have we known over the years, how do Christians handle tragedy? What experiences of grace have we known? What's the relevance of prayer? And the list is endless. So making experience crucial, central to, to church life in some way, I think is a real challenge for us. You will know the, the great rock band U2, um, led by Bono. Bono is a deeply spiritual person. We got to know him years ago through the World Economic Forum. And in his, I think it's a wonderful album, How to Dismantle uh, an Atomic Bomb. He never gives us the answer, of course. Uh, it, one of his songs is called Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh, and that's very suggestive, isn't it? And one verse in it is saying, Take this soul stranded in some skin and bones, Take this soul and make it sing. Take these hands, teach them what to carry. Take these hands, don't make a fist. Take this mouth, so keen to criticize. It's really a prayer of longing to be a better person. Do you know, if you look at the New Testament, there are strikingly very few verses in the New Testament that talk about church and church life. But there are dozens of verses that speak of meeting the Lord and authentic engagement with God through the Holy Spirit. And so engaging with the world through the attractiveness of a personal faith is central to effective evangelism and mission. Now, the other poll I want to talk about now is through service to one another. And here is a real success story I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk first about the intellectual side of this. William Temple may not be known to you, but he is one of the great giants in our tradition. He was the only Archbishop of Canterbury for two years, from 1942 to 1944. He died a comparatively young uh, person. He made his name when he was Bishop of Manchester. And he was very fond of always saying this, actually, Christianity is the most materialistic of religions. And he meant by that, that the incarnation of God coming into our world 
makes God so close at hand um, and that God's desire was to transform everything. What changed William Temple's thought was his experience of life as Bishop of Manchester in the 30s. He came from an upper-class family. He'd never known poverty or want. He'd been brought up in comfort, privilege. He'd gone from a private school um, to Oxford University. And now he was bishop of a great working city in which he found, to his, to his horror, there were actually running sewers through poor parts of the city. Young children, 10, 11, forced to work where medicine was beyond the reach of most homes. And we have to remember that the great National Health Service was only created in 1948, so this precedes that period. Now, the experience of being bishop in Manchester opened William Temple's eyes and his ministry changed. He became a campaigner for change. But more than that, he became the intellectual driving force for change. Even today, his writings excite and challenge. His greatest book is probably Christianity and the Social Order. And if you read it, you will be inspired by his clear thinking and compassion. Because for Temple, to be a Christian is to live as a Christian. It's to change the structures of society. So that poor people can share in the wealth of the nation. For Temple, it was outrageous that a country as rich as Britain should have poverty on the scale of India. It was unacceptable. Of course, in Britain and America and elsewhere, Christians had been working at this for a very long time. But Temple's great impact was the intellectual side of this because he took on the powers that took it for granted that growth is only possible at the expense of the poor. And we call this a kind of trickle-down th theory. The Conservative Party in Britain, always talking about this, that eventually uh, prosperity will reach the bottom, eventually it will trickle down. Now, Temple totally disagreed with that. Now, it's often claimed that Temple's thinking was socialist, but that's wrong. Uh, it's true that many socialists at the time seized upon his thinking and claimed him as their own, but Temple was a Christian. He wasn't a socialist. His thought transcends politics. His concern was always justice and particularly compassion to those in need. And his, that text from Micah, it was always in the background, you, you know it well. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justice, seek mercy, and walk humbly with your God? My friend um, Brian Griffiths, vice chair of Goldman Sachs, and that probably indicates where he stands, is uh, now Lord Griffiths. He's a very dear friend of ours, member of the Conservative Party, in, um, in England, he was chairman of Margaret Thatcher's finance committee. He is also a critical follower of Temple, judging him to be one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century. For Lord Griffiths, there is nothing parochial about William Temple. He's a thinker for all times.
is a critique for all political parties. Now, there's one thing that is very interesting about Temple. When I was talking last night about humankind, one thing I mentioned was that sin is invariably wrapped up in love of self and self-greed. One of Dante's seven deadly sins. And it's in this context that Temple made a remarkable contribution. He brought out clearly into the foreground a factor which is always present in human life, uh, but often we want to ignore it. It's called self-interest. Now, Temple's focus was on this idea. When people see something, it's hard for them to give it up. They may have got something unjustly. Even so, it's hard for people to, to surrender something which is not theirs. So let's uh, make it personal. Suppose that your bank has credited your account to the sum of $10,000 and you didn't notice this at first. That's difficult to believe, isn't it? <laughs> You're bound to notice $10,000. And then the bank comes back to you and says, um, well, I'm sorry, but the money is not yours. It belongs to somebody else. And you can imagine the horror, distress and anger Yes, the point is, it's not easy to give up something which might impact on your standard of living. Now, multiply that several, and we're trying to adjust society, how difficult it is for the rich to give up something that they may have gained lawfully and legally, but still, nevertheless, it oppresses, and they may have got it at the expense of the poor. And so this is and I want, this is something so wonderful, I want you to observe. So what is Temple's observation? It comes in a wonderful celebrated quote. He says this, The art of government, in fact, is the art of so ordering life that self-interest prompts what justice demands. It's brilliant. What self-interest prompts, what justice demands. And he believed from that, and I'll come back to that in a moment, that the church is not a department of life that only is interested in personal beliefs and devotional practices. He says, from the earliest times, the church has spoken out on public matters, and it's only in recent times that this right has been questioned. And so when the economic order fails to produce Christian character, the church must seek to change it. And I quote, The church may tell the politician what ends the social order should promote, but it must leave it to the politician the devising of the precise means to those ends. So society should be structured in such a way that the three elements of it, which is that of the in individual, should be given maximum freedom, um, and then the society in which he or she is set, and the third element is that of service to the wider community. And it's in that context that famous sentence can be understood. The art of government 
in fact, is the art of so ordering life that self-interest prompts what justice demands. Because he knew that people rarely give up possessions, money, and position voluntarily. And so he brought this right out into the open, that self-interest is actually, it gets in the way. We find it difficult to share with one another. What is the Anglican view, then, of when and how the church should interfere, interfere in the social order? This is a quote from him again. If we belong to the church, we are obligated to ask concerning every field of human activity, what is the purpose of God for it? The method of the church's impact upon society at large should be twofold. The church must announce Christian principles and point out where the existing social order is in conflict. It must then pass on to Christian citizens acting in their civic capacity the task of shaping or reshaping the existing order in closer conformity to the principles. And that is a classic temple. So he says it's important for Christians to hold politicians to account. For example, and this is where I'm really up to date now in what I'm going to say to you, is it healthy for the world's economy that the wealth of 1% now equals the remaining 99%? That's a recent statistic. I read recently that the richest people in the world could all be seated on a London double-decker bus. And it shows the way in which riches are now held in the hands of a tiny number of people. Is it healthy for Britain when ordinary working Brits can no longer afford homes in London? Where that means, where do essential workers, such as teachers, nurses, refuse collectors, bus drivers, and other people live? They'll have to be bussed in from outside, leaving London cocooned as a place for only the wealthy. And when you get to such extremes, there comes the danger of the tipping point when a revolt is always possible. We've only got to think of the French Revolution as an example of that, because the tipping point came when the poor so looked at the rich going past in their carriage and so on, and then under the, that, that leadership, we, we believe it was a wrong revolution, nevertheless the tipping point came. But let me leave um, William Temple behind as a rare but important example of intellectual thoroughness in social and political thinking. We ought to be modestly proud that he stood firmly in the Anglican tradition. But I also want to point out that America has had its champions as well. I think, for example, of uh, Walter... R R I can never pronounce the German name. I need Stephen to help me. Rauschenbusch uh, lived at the beginning of the last century, a Protestant theologian and thinker, German background, obviously, who was a stalwart for change. Or from the Catholic dimension, Dorothy Day. Uh, nothing to do with Doris Day or anything like that, but um, 
Dorothy Day was a Catholic socialist thinker, started the Catholic Worker newspaper. And so in the Catholic tradition, of course, social theology is a wonderful and greatly admired aspect of, of Catholic thought. But American can be very proud of the way in which you have, um, from ordinary churches, you know, you've got to think of Birmingham with the civil rights movement as a wonderful example of Christians saying certain things are wrong and we must fight injustice. But social action has always been an element in Christian thought and as old as Christianity itself. We've only got to think back to the actions and examples of Jesus caring for the poor um, and then the actions of the, in the early church as well. And the great news is that your church and mine are involved in great acts of generosity and kindness. Now some Christians might resist the idea of relevance, saying that the church should always transcend the idea of relevance. I disagree. I disagree totally. Churches are compelled to be relevant. And I've often said to uh, church leaders, if your church were to fold up tomorrow and go out of business, would it ever be missed? And it's a real challenge. In what way, when a church folds up, what would it leave behind? A relevant church would be in action for the poor, the aged, and one thing and another. Because human nature, you know, is a brittle thing. We are mortal, we are weak, we're of the earth. But, as I said yesterday, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has set eternity in our hearts. There's a hunger for God in the human breast. And in the immortal words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I believe that the task before all our churches today is huge, huge. But there's no reason to be dismayed or lose heart. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the opportunities abound. And as long as sin reigns and wickedness stalks the earth, the Christian faith will always be relevant. Thank you very much. You certainly covered a lot of ground there, uh, <laughs> Gary, but uh, in the very beginning of your talk, you made a statement that Christianity was the only way that democracy and capitalism could uh, evolve, and I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And then you went on to quote Mr. Temple, who seemed uh, to have a very significant misunderstanding of capitalism and the way that it's that it's built. And uh, I wonder if you could flesh out both those points a little bit. Well, thank you. I don't think he um, was mistaken about capitalism. I mean, at the time he was writing, he was well aware of the weakness of capitalism and the damage that it was doing. Um, and what he tried to do was to actually say, okay, as a nation, we've got to we've got to actually find ways in which the riches of the earth can be shared 
by everyone, because he's working, as I said, from a particular social context in, in Manchester. Um, his thinking influenced Methodism as well as Anglicanism. Uh, it was a, a leading part of Tony Blair's thinking, as he told, uh, spoke to me. And um, it's still very relevant in reminding us of the fact that um, we have a social policy in economic theory to make sure that the poor are not left out of the picture. That is where I think he drives me. I wouldn't want to claim infallibility for his thinking, but he is one of those giants, and particularly in the way he brought out the fact of folly at the heart of human nature and the, the verse I quoted about self-interest, how that is a factor in, uh, in our makeup. But thank you for the question. Andrew? You mentioned the, the French Revolution, and um, I'm curious as your response to some historians who would say that England, too, was on the brink of revolution, and had it not been for the Wesleyan revivals, a revolution may have broken out. And so what was it about the church's response to the social ills of the day and what the Wesleys were doing in addition to preaching and how Christians stepped up as as opposed to a reliance on the state? Yes, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because the Methodist uh, revival, when we say Methodist, it was very much at that point an Anglican thing because the Wesley brothers were still working within the, uh, the Church of England. There are two things there, really, is that, yes, th there, was, there was in England the abuse and the gulf between the very rich and the very poor, but it wasn't as bad as in France. That's one thing. And I think Edmund Burke, the great prime minister at the time, was very well aware of that and anxious that we didn't fall into that trap. But the thing that um, the politi politician didn't engineer was, in fact, the unexpected nature of um, the evangelical revival that happened under the Wesleys. And that was very significant because at the very heart of that, that revival that we call Methodist was a real commitment to care and compassion for one another. And the way they set up the organization in tiny communities and reaching out, you've only got to read uh, Wesley's books to understand actually that there's no separation between preaching the gospel and, and caring in practical ways for the needy. So, uh, and the way they set up the set works for the Bible study groups and so on. So the two things went along side by side and then after that you get into the Anglican sort of uh, the, right, the Oxford movement which was also a very strong um, thrust on social witness as well A lady there As you were speaking about this, I'm assuming that you are talking about the responsibility of the church versus the government in that we want people, we want the church to reach out so they can know God and his love and his help versus the looking to the government as their God. Would you just comment on that? Yes, I mean, part of the, well, an aspect of the interesting question there is that um, it's sometimes quite difficult to say the church is doing this and the government is doing that. 
because if we are effective in our society, our politicians are taking hints and leads from Christian leadership as well. And this is evident in not only in uh, Methodism and in England, uh, but all the way through in your country in the 19th century into the 20th century as well. In other words, um, the politician may well be speaking as a Christian um, thinker on, on that because if Christianity permeates our society, then it's going to exhibit itself in acts of kindness and generosity and, and also in policies that's going to actually shape, shape society. So thank you. That's great. Mm. I wasn't here last evening. I hope I'm not opening a can of worms here. But you said that we need to adjust the spiritual lens to the outside world and become all-inclusive. And I'm curious, as being somebody who grew up here in the South in a very conservative environment, I lived in New York for 10 years and lived overseas for three years, it's interesting to see how religion and the church, to me, my opinion, morally and on values, is being watered down. So I'm curious, your idea of widening the lens, is that to be becoming more accepting of things that really are more immoral? Or, I know this is sort of a... <laughs> Slippy slope, but I'm, just, I'm curious, if, if what do you mean by widening the lens and being more accepting? Hmm. I'll have to look back and see what I said there. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what I was getting, getting at was the, 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 spirit, the spiritual lens opening up. So the problem with church life is that it can be so enjoyable, at the same time so um, demanding, you can become very closed in on yourself and um, the challenge I think for all churches in terms of relevance is to ask the question okay how effective are we in society what do we bring in way of a contribution to our society so for example I can only use English British terms here but if we take um, Britain at a time when uh, there's a deepening gap between the poor and the rich. It's the churches that have actually stepped in and um, done a lot to do with food banks. The church we go to is very strong in, involved in that. So we're looking at something where there's a practical social need. So we're opening our eyes, um, widening our horizons to make a contribution and to speak out when, the, when there is a need to do this. Now, I, do, I can't really compare with America, but I know you're doing a lot in food banks and other things as well. It, it is a matter of, I, I, I still cling to the word relevance to the needs of the day. I, thought that, I, th I think that Jesus was totally relevant because he was on the lookout, he was looking around, he wanted to share um, his life with others, and we've got to do the same. Come up to me afterwards if uh, that's not clear. Just to, to piggyback off of uh, what Lynn was saying, uh, there tends to be, a, I think what you're saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for clarification, so there tends to be um, in the United States that when it seems that the culture is most hostile to Christianity, it's to pull up the drawbridge and retreat 
rather to it rather inclusion it sounds to me that you're saying is an engagement uh, with the world that rather than um, retreating actually uh, <coughs> redoubling your efforts uh, in order to serve your community and to be in the world but not of the world yeah and I thought I was um, actually saying virtually that anyway that um, when you actually uh, think of some churches they are actually retreating um, from the world, the challenges, um, and the reason why we're, some are retreating from the world, losing confidence. You lose confidence in yourself, your ability to say it. We can't do anything. So the best thing to do is to draw up the drawbridge and enjoy a lovely Christian life and think you're relevant. Uh, but authentic Christianity is to say, let's get out there. We may be few compared to the people out there, but we have something to offer. And if it's coming, actually, from a position of sharing, of common humanity, then, of course, then the world's your oyster. You can see, you never know where it's going to lead you. Because it, it is a fact of every step is a step of faith. Lord Perry, uh, <clears throat> along those same lines, um, I come from a long line of sinners, so I'm, I know whatever I speak, but our presiding bishop, who I thought maybe would take us in a, a new direction, has said that he's going to go full bore ahead. Our bishop, Keith Sloan, said he is in lunch to me, said he's not interested in theology, he just wants us all to get along. So with the leadership, leading us in the wrong direction we're blessed at the advent to have good leadership good teaching uh, and a good understanding of the word but it is disheartening when these distant leaders uh, are leading you know, as jesus said his most judgment was on those that lead children astray and likewise Paul whose uh, ministry was against false teachers and here we find ourselves in the midst of that uh, our leaders leading children astray wow I don't know what you, want me, you expect me to say about that um, I think actually as an outsider I want to suggest that every church should be confident in what it's doing and where it's going not to worry about what others are doing, to respect your leadership. You don't have to agree with your leadership, but in the Anglican tradition, we want to walk in step with our, our leadership. And so if you speak out boldly and say, this is what our church stands for, regardless of what others, I think God is going to bless you. Um, I don't think, you see, there is a tendency, in, especially in Protestant Christianity, is the schismatic tendency that we don't like what's going on, so we separate. And then we don't like what's going on, so we separate again. And um, the whole concept of Catholicity, of breadth, holding differences together is lost. Now, I'm not saying by that that I would be happy by being in a church where I'm, I disagree with the leadership. I'm, I'm an outsider, a friend who's stepping into your lovely life just for a moment or two. So um, I would say be 
churches should only leave when you are forced to leave. Don't. I'm not saying leave, but the idea of our leaders leading people astray. Then you tell them. Well, I. Yeah. I'm not shy about it. No. <laughs> I, I gather from last night and tonight you're not shy. And I, I, I respect the strength of your character. That, that's great. And that's right. And we, ought to, we all ought to be doing that. Um, I, I do it all the time, well, actually. I've successfully done that, but <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it didn't lessen their stride. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's difficult, it really is. It seems to me that the greatest part of our problem is communications. We're not speaking the same language to each other. And what we say is so misunderstood. And we don't seem to accept the good offices of others who have a different opinion. I'm not saying that we should abandon principles. But to have a conversation, you have to have two people speaking the same language. And it appears to me that on both sides, my side and on the other side, our minds are closed too often. And I believe that might be a step in the right direction if we could at least understand that what we object to may be close to the heart of the person saying it. And that what he objects to in us is close to our hearts. And I'm wondering how we bridge the gap. How do we, how do we open the conversation where we can get beyond main calling and saber Yeah, yeah. But that, that's great. Now, of course, we're in danger of wandering away from the, the thrust of what I'm, I, my focus tonight was on how do we reach out to our society, what's the strength of our faith in dialogue with a common humanity. But what I, I think you, what you, you've just said helps me and I think helps us all to grasp this important principle. And I see it been working out in the last 15 years or so. The more we get into um, ish, single issue problems, the more our attention is taken away from the big game and the issue of relevance, evangelism, service and so on. I have to say as I look at the Anglican Communion our unity is under attack. We're not as effective as we once were was in, uh, in Africa for example. And, and the, what I think the present Archbishop has done is saying and tried to bring both sides together to get a conversation started again so we can talk to one another. That's the very point you're making. Let's talk Let's show that we are we, our disagreement, but let's have respect one another so that we can actually say, okay, we're spending far too much time on this. Let's get out there and remember that we mustn't spend all our money on lawyers or this and the other. Spend our money on reaching out to those in need with a living gospel that changes lives. Thank you. Great. Smile. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Mm. Archbishop Lady Carey, thank you so much for being with us. You uh, will be with us uh, on Sunday morning at the 9 o'clock 
and at uh, during Sunday school, we'll have a big class in the church, and then of course confirmation at at 11. So we'll be delighted to host you there. And uh, if you're interested, Stephen McCarthy's preaching at 7:30 in the morning uh, for all uh, for all you real for all you real Christians. Uh, are going to be at, yes, uh, yes. At, at that hour. So God bless yes. you, uh, Carrie. So glad that you're with us and for bringing us a good word tonight. Thank you. And uh, thank you. And can I say thank you to you for sharp questions. I appreciate that enormously. Um, the work continues, and there's much to excite us and encourage us. So thank you all, and see you on Sunday. Thank you.